The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is made by the spin off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Bell. If you have enjoyed a scented candle and beautiful glass, perhaps one with a lovely gold foil on it, or with letters artfully arranged, you may have been enjoying the fruits of the labour of today's guest, a Kiwi who's had great success in international fragrance, an entrepreneur now based in London who has been a champion for a new wave of New Zealand companies there. Christopher Yu is the Managing Director of United Perfumes. He went to the UK as a lawyer, fell in love with the luxury world and helped reinvent the world of scented candles by growing Diptyque and then launching the Sia Trudon and Fornacetti candle brands. His company works with some of the world's biggest brands in luxury perfume and he has long worked to try to help make New Zealand a place that an international success could come from. To talk perfume, the UK and brand New Zealand, Christopher joins us today. Good day. Hey, Simon, how are you? <laughs> Very well, thank you. Hey, so Christopher, tell us, you went to the UK originally 20-odd years ago uh, with, with tax law, is that right? How, oh, how did that you're, come you're, about? You're ageing me there, oh. Simon. Um, yeah, I, I, back in 1999, I uh, was the last of my law school group of friends to, to, to leave Wellington. They had all gone to London and I decided I, I was getting major FOMO. And uh, and uh, finally, I got my uh, visa with my working holiday visa from the British Embassy and, and, and off I went. Um, and much to the disgust of my family still here in Lower Hutt, um, I've, I've never come back yet, yet. Yeah. Although back for flying visits, a four day visit at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, I always, I always relish an opportunity to come back here. I still, I still call New Zealand home. So, um, any opportunity. How did you go from being in tax law in London into the world of luxury? You know, it was complete luck and complete chance. I mean, I think, and any time I hear anyone say they knew exactly what they were doing with their career, I, I kind of am very suspicious. Um, I, I went over and obviously was just doing jobs purely just to get enough money to go travelling with my friends in the weekend, and 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 through a very 
sort of fine stroke of luck. I was made redundant from a, a job in the city from Deutsche Bank. Um, and with a little bit of money burning in my pocket, um, I decided to just get a, um, a retail job while I was traveling in between. And that retail job happened to be at Liberty Department Store, which is you know one of the most amazing department stores still in the world. And that's when um, one lunchtime I met my still business partner, Laurent, um, and he was uh, just about to launch um, Diptyque into the UK. Wow! And so, how did you get involved with Diptyque? And what? So, was Diptyque not really throughout the country? Um, so, Diptyque in the sort of late nineties, early two thousands was really only sold um, uh, out of couple of stores in Paris um, and I think they just started selling to Barney's in, in the US so they were really just starting that sort of worldwide expansion and you know it was really interesting you'd go over on the early days of the Eurostar and you'd see all the fashion editors and the, the in crowd come back from Paris to, to London Waterloo at the time with two bags one used to be La Durée macaroons and the other one would be a bag of uh, diptyque candles so we kind of knew there was something happening and um, we decided to um, take the distribution for Diptyque uh, for the UK and Ireland and and, and sort of bring that um, to, to the masses as such. I mean, there was already um, a couple of retailers, Space NK, which is a beauty retailer, um, and, um, and I think one other independent retailer at the time. The idea of like the luxury scented candle, the bougie candle, the um, expensive occasion special candle you you light and and it's a real thing. It it kind of wasn't a thing before that though, was it? Like I kind of remember when they first came into New Zealand and they were available in Tasuti and they were this amazing thing. No one could believe that a candle could cost a hundred dollars. Um, yeah, I, I think Diptyque really did reinvent um, the way people looked at candles. I mean, they, they they still are, and I love the brand still. Um, they are still such a sort of a Parisian chic sort of um, symbol. And um, the, the great thing is that the, the brand was already um, right from the 80s, um, right through, adopted in Paris by the fashion crowd. So, you know, it wasn't you know, Diptyque that deliberately turned themselves into the brand that they are today. It was that certain early adopters, you know, um, took on the brand as, as their gift of choice and centered their showrooms and the catwalks, etc. And so it became synonymous with that sort of slightly glamorous world of Parisian fashion. And, 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 and that's really how it became the sort of gift of choice. Um, and London at the time being so close to Paris, it, it, it it was just a natural thing that it would come to the UK as well. And funnily enough, today in 2017, the UK is one of the most developed and most sophisticated home fragrance markets. It's, it's actually almost bigger than the US. Wow. And so when you saw that wave like leaving or t- taking taking off, if we're going to mix a metaphor there, that, 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 that wave cresting, you, you jumped into it. What level was that kind of home fragrance market at when you started and then where did you build it to with Diptyque? Well, you know, to give you a sort of a mental picture, you know, when we first launched in uh, Diptyque into to Liberty, um, it was one shelf. So one shelf, I think, of like seven, eight candles. Um, by the time um, we sold the business uh, in 2007, it was an entire room. 
of just diptyque uh, with something like 60 different candles, 20 different toilets and many different sizes and room sprays. And it, it really became a, a huge beast on its own, really. And so you had the Liberty, but also all across the UK. How did you build the brand out? Well, the, the, the thing was that there were a few mistakes made by the brand before we got involved, in our opinion anyway. And they were selling to a few sort of mom and pop interior design stores in the middle of nowhere. And what Law and I decided to do was really to start culling um, the, the the number of doors, as we call it in the industry, the, the places that you could find it, um, and start limiting the distribution. Um, it's one of those things where unconsciously, um, it wasn't really motivated from a snobbery point of view, but we felt like we could control it better if we were dealing with fewer stores and, and also stores that we could really make sure that the brand was put on the shelf in the right way, always you know tidy and dusted and simple, really basic retail rules. And so Liberty and Space NK um, were enough for us at that time where we just couldn't, we didn't have the resources. It was just sort of three of us. Um, you know, I was working every weekend at Liberty on the shop floor selling the product. Um, so it was really a hustle. Um, and so we just really made those choices to manage um, our own growth rather than trying to cater to too many different retailers at, at, at once. Having built it up to that level, uh, was it a hard thing to sell? Were, were you excited to move into new things? Did you have another thing on the horizon? Again, if anyone tells you they have a new, you know what they're doing, I mean, I think you know I would accuse them of being a liar. But I, I, we had no idea that the brand um, was going to be bought by um, a, you know a fund um, at, in Paris, and and we, they were very kind enough to sort of say, look, the UK is the model market at the time. They wanted to model the US and France and Italy on what we had created as a distribution model in the UK. And so we were very flattered um, and they offered us, you know, full-time jobs to, to you know, buy the company and then go work for them. And I think at that point, um, as anyone who works for themselves will probably tell you, um, it's really hard to go back to working for someone else. And so we decided to sell up Lock, Stock and Barrel and, and start again. I mean, I was in my... Ooh, uh, early 30s at the time so i think i was still you know quite happy to sort of start from the bottom again tell me about the relationship that you then formed with sia trudon and uh what you've gone on to do together with them yeah sia trudon is another sort of you know stroke of luck you know story i was in um Belgium, no, Antwerp, um, and we were looking at retailers for another brand we had just launched in Europe at the time um, called um, Apothea from um, Los Angeles from Fred Siegel, and um, we were looking for retailers, and I saw these green glasses that were just so beautiful, hand-blown, full of bubbles and imperfect, um, and these crazy fragrances that I couldn't quite understand, and there was only three different fr- smells at the time. And so I tracked down um, the, 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 I didn't buy one at the time, but I tracked down the company and um, I Googled them as everybody does and, and just dropped them an email saying, look, I just love what you're doing. It's so fresh. It's so interesting. You know, good for you. Um, and within minutes, literally minutes, I had the creative director and, and, and um, part owner of the company, Ramdan Tarami, um, calling me um, and saying, look, let's talk. Um, 
he had obviously been on Google straight away and, and stuck Laurent and my company's name into the computer and, and saw that we had um, had some um, luck with Diptyque and, and decided he wanted to to have a conversation with us. So we hopped on a train sort of two days later to Paris, um, met with him and basically signed a deal within sort of 24 hours to distribute um, the brand uh, all around the UK and in Ireland again. Um, and, and little did we know at that time, Sertrudon would really become the next diptyque. And, um, and we were so happy to be able to sort of luckily recreate the success that we had um, this the first time round. Um, and, and and especially being such a different brand. I mean, Cetrodon, in terms of the, the the brand offering, the way it sells, um, the the look is so different from Diptyque. And so we were really pleased to, to, to be able to do it with something that wasn't another, um, you know, Me Too brand, as I call them, you know, copycat brand. Absolutely. I mean, for anyone who, who isn't, uh, hasn't got a picture in their head of the Diptyque versus the Cetrodon, the Diptyque is the, the plainest uh, white tumbler with a yeah, d- white d- label on it like black and white and it's single note so what it says on the tin is what it is if it's rose it's rose if it's if it's a you know fur de bois it's a wood fire if it's fig yeah it's fig and so Cetrodon came about telling historical stories i mean Cetrodon is actually a, a brand from a factory that's been going since 1643. So making candles um, for both the Louise, uh, Napoleon, uh, or through Marie Antoinette's reign as well. So they, 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 were the, had, they were the official candle makers for the Catholic Church, weren't they, in, in yes, France? They, they know, like every one of the uh, be- beautiful uh, candles in the sacrosanct at the altar. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, up until about five years ago, 90% of all the Catholic churches in, in France um, had their candles supplied by Cetrion. So um, it's quite an illustrious history. But it wasn't a um, fragrance or creative history, though, was it? It was a wax candle history. And so this new um, scented candle approach where you were telling stories like um, the scent that you would have in Marie Antoinette's garden, uh, that was that, that was very inventive and very new, wasn't it? And also quite maximalist compared to the minimalist luxury of Diptyque. Yeah, absolutely. I think like with all sort of brands and brand cycles and trends um they just go go swinging from one end of the pendulum to the other and and Cetrodon came about as a real antithesis to that pared down minimalist almost 90s feel of of diptyque and and here Cetrodon came about and said oh um here's the smell um uh, called solace rex which where we sent a perfumer with um, a perfume historian, Elizabeth Perfido, to to um, the mirrored hall in Versailles to sniff the parquet floor <laughs> to recreate the smell of of polished floorboards in these beautiful grand ballrooms. So it was it was a very maximalist view of, of fragrance as well as design um, and branding compared to what Diptyque was, and um, and it just caught the imagination of of the, the the fashion crowd again. And they were early adopters. Karl Lagerfeld, being a lifelong Diptyque customer, suddenly swapped to to Cetrudon. Uh, within a year of the relaunch of the brand. So we were very, very fortuitous very early on to have that support. If people have encountered them here, they've likely encountered them at the world stores. Uh, and, you know, trying to set the picture for people, if you walked up and you saw on a, a shelf a series of these beautiful uh, glass with a gold foil on the front and they'd be under these big glass cloches. And so that kind of... Um, 
theatre piece where you have to lift it off to smell them. Tell me about like that. that, um, Is that something you design? Is that something purposeful, that that theatre? Yeah, again, the the theatre was, you know, I think this is the thing about brands full stop is that you can't fake authenticity. And with Saturon, everything that the brand is known for now came out of a necessity or someone else's need for, for, for really actually very basic, uh, honest um, sort of retail type ideas rather than trying to deliberately create theatre or deliberately create drama. So the glass cloches, the glass bells on top of the candles was honest to God put there to trap the smell but also keep the dust out yeah because we knew that it was going to be you know sold in these sort of department store environments where there's you know a million visitors a week and people touching things all the time and we wanted to keep it pristine and looking beautiful and 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 same as if you look at some cheese under a glass bell there's something very magical about a very basic um block of cheese underneath a glass bell on a beautiful board so you know we took that idea of just keeping it clean and tidy and really maximizing your ability to smell the scent with scented candles a lot of the time when customers pick them up and smell them from the candle they're smelling mostly wax um and the 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 base formula as well as the fragrance on top so we wanted to give a much clearer idea of what the smell would be like when it's in the air burning so a glass bell captures that scent and all you need to do is lift up the glass bell sniff inside the bell instead of the candle and it gives you the idea of what it will smell like in your house is that something that's um surprised you uh the i i guess the um the way that little home rituals and home luxuries and like personal indulgences have become such a business and such a thing that everyone from luxury retailers to chain stores are offering these things yeah i mean i always i always think if i knew the formula of why home fragrance became as big as it it has i i certainly would be sharing that with a few people or selling my friends and we'd be celebrating next to an infinity pool with all our millions but we don't we don't know why um i can only speculate and and you know my anecdotal sort of evidence hearing from customers is that as the world sort of spins faster and as life gets tougher home becomes so much more important and and that sort of trend of food with jamie oliver in the 90s and people starting to really cook at home and understand ingredients and 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 people buying you know the champagne sales you know going up because people buying bottles to take home rather than drinking in restaurants candles and you know cocooning has become such an important part um of our sort of daily ritual because it is i guess getting tougher out there or we feel it is and so we need that ability to sort of unwind when when we come home and there is nothing more triggering in a positive way than scent because fragrance we don't actually know how animal it works in our body scientists still don't 100 percent know why we, we smell the way we smell yet it is the most visceral and the most fastest way to access memory and um it's just the most simple way of changing a mood and and i think that's really where this whole industry has grown out of it's it's not from, from a design perspective as such but more from the sort of cocooning and a need to to feel comfort and a home environment these companies that you talk with there, talk about there, um, like the Cetradon, and also um, just to quickly touch on the other big collaboration that your company's done uh, is, is with the Fornacetti uh, Homewares. Is that right? Is that the, the other big one? Yeah, so so Fornacetti is, is a, a 
an amazing, you know, Piero Fornicetti is an amazing artist um, and madman in a way from, you know, from the 50s and 60s, a real design movement from Italy. And um, about 10 years ago now, uh, just under 10 years, we met with his son, Barnaba um, Fornicetti, um, and he was interested in creating home fragrance because he was going through his father's archives and found all these sketches for, for sort of jars and perfume bottles that his father never put into production. So we really wanted to explore that. And, you know, we fell in love with the brand straight away. It is so visual. And again, it is just another step away from sort of the Citrudon, um, very French, um, directoire style to something that is almost pop, um, highly designed, highly visual, you know, highly decorative. Um, because I, we started seeing that, talking about that sort of home cocooning thing, people at the beginning would buy a diptych candle and some of the houses in, in London would turn the label around so that you didn't see it because they thought it a little bit vulgar to have a label uh, like uh, you know, someone else's brand on their mantelpiece. So we started realizing, especially with, with Trudon, that people wanted something quite decorative and Trudon being, you know, hand-blown glass from Vinci with this beautiful gold label made from the oldest label maker, a champagne label maker in France. We knew that the Fornicetti visuals would really lend themselves well to the next wave in home fragrance, which was being highly decorative, where you would show it off, you would leave it out, you would not try and hide it, um, to the point where we know we create room sprays that most people, you know, a lot of my friends put in their, you know, guest bathrooms, and they leave them out, you know, because they are so beautiful and so visual, rather than hiding the sort of glade underneath the the, the loose seat. So, um, you know, we knew that 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 the decorative side was something that needed to be, um, you know. Uh, done in the home fragrance market when you talk about the, the i mean these have great histories these brands you know uh Cetrodon especially with with hundreds of years of extraordinary provenance behind it how, how do you go about um you, you know with the new zealand perspective with a country that doesn't have a long history of being recognized as a uh, a home of luxury or um of of great crafts personship, um, more of a primary industries place. How do you go about creating luxury in a country like this? I I think this is the big thing that I try anytime I speak to any New Zealand brand that that I meet, try and get through to them is that, you know, I was born here. um, I've been away for 17, 18 years now. And I look at New Zealand and I'm so proud of everything. And I'm so fascinated by how it's kept such a strong personality from an outsider's point of view, from anyone else overseas looks at New Zealand like this jewel. And then most New Zealanders here are like, oh, I don't really know what's special about us. And I think that's, in a way, what makes New Zealand special, just to sort of be be obtuse for a second, um, is that there's a certain naivety here and that we don't know what we have. Um, And I think with luxury, it is that gentleness and that non-pushy, non-traditional, in-your-face old school idea of luxury that makes this country so special. I mean, there's a reason why they are now more um, leading hotels, small SLH, whatever they call themselves, lodges in this country than any other country per capita because there is this this amazing you know view of service in New Zealand that's really genuine and authentic, and there is a there is a casualness that is that is non-threatening, but at the same time relaxing, and and that is the new luxury. And I think that's the way we've got to look at it as New Zealanders: is that not to ape the old luxury codes of Europe, which are you know gold and gilded and and maximalist, or or you know or 
looking at it that way and more look at what we are great at and what is authentic about New Zealand. I think there's a huge history of craft in New Zealand. I mean, if we look at, you know, our own history here in New Zealand with um, Māori culture and, you know, I literally have just been at Wainuamata Marae this morning dropping off some flowers. My mum has a chain of florists and, and so I was just doing some deliveries for her. And, you know, I walked in and there is an immediate warmth and amazing feeling that I couldn't quite place. And then you, I quickly looked around and you could see all the cloths and the mats and and the carving and and you think okay that that is craft and and that those skills can be applied in uh, you know in an aesthetic which would definitely have uh, resonance uh, with an international market so i think you know luxury for new zealanders and new zealand brands is really finding their own voice and not trying to to be like the old codes of luxury of, of the old Europe of France and Italy and, and, and the UK um, and I think that's where New Zealanders find their success if you look at our most successful exports in luxury be it food like Peter Gordon or Karen Walker in fashion they've found their own aesthetic and they've really marched to their own you know the own beat and um, I think that's really where um, us as New Zealanders um, will find success uh, overseas. Tell me a little bit about some of the stuff that um, that you, you know you do to try and help advance that idea of a New Zealand brand. Because I, I first was introduced to you, uh, and you've been an amazing help and mentor and friend and sharer of information and uh, and wisdom and, and guidance uh, for for things, that, things that I've done with um, <laughs> things that I've done with with our Ingrid Stan stuff. Uh, but we were first introduced to you by. Um, uh, Lucy Vincent, who has the beautiful Sons Cuticles, and um, uh, Dion Nash of Triumph and Disaster, another really um, individual, you know, of New Zealand, but very international product. And they both had said that you'd been a, a great help to them along the way as well at times. Um, you know, I think it all goes back to that. You know, I, I'm, I come from a family of immigrants. You know, my parents on both sides came from China and Hong Kong um, in the 50s and you know they were really welcomed by New Zealand and you know I've been so blessed in that I talk about growing up here never feeling racism never you know feeling uh, marginalized and fully part uh, of the country and encouraged you know to 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 be individual and to encourage to to celebrate both my Kiwiness but my Chineseness and I think the way that I look at you know, New Zealand now from a from an overseas point of view is that there is so much to share. And if anyone is interested um, in sharing what they've created here in New Zealand in an overseas market, I, you know, I, I've always really wanted to help purely because I believe in, you know, paying it back and paying it forward. And, and I think um, there, you know, I truly believe that the next view uh, and the next taste uh, uh, and trends will come from down under i mean if you no one in the the early 90s would have predicted the influence of scandinavia on interior design i mean they were the most surprised themselves um no one would have expected you know back in the 80s the influence of japan uh, on on design and and luxury and so i truly believe that the new the next wave will come from new zealand and that comes from the bottom of my heart and so when I meet amazing, you know, small producers or you know people on the cusp uh, of of exploding on the international market like uh, um, yourselves, it, it really excites me. And so I, I try and get involved in a non sort of micromanaging way. Um, and also, I feel like it's it's helpful to share 
what I've the mis- through the mistakes that I've made um, to make sure that people don't make the same mistakes because uh, I was helped up, um, you know, by by other people um, with bigger brands than mine at the, in the early days. And there's a wonderful British saying which I will always always quote: "Standing on the shoulders of giants." And I truly believe that 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 my success if you put it is is down to everyone else who has helped me get there and therefore um there, there's absolutely a need in me to make sure that the, the new zealand voice gets heard uh, overseas and to that end what kind of advice do you give to you know if someone's listening to this who has a um a, a beautiful a, a special idea that they think needs a bigger market because you know, $100 candles, there is not a big enough market in New Zealand for you to make a very successful company doing that here. You need to be thinking of London and Paris and New York from day one. What what, what kind of advice do you give people with these dreams? That, 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 is, that is very true. I mean, there's three things I'll say. The first thing is there is absolutely a market in New Zealand. It's not as big. That's absolutely right. Population-wise, it's just not as big. But if you can learn to service your 1,000 customers here or 500 customers even there, that will buy and pay for the, the quality and the, the art that you're creating, then you've learned something that you can translate and, and, and upscale to larger volumes. So you need to make it work here. Don't think that... New Zealand is not important. New Zealand is extremely important because the customer base here is is going to tell you um, what works and what doesn't. So you you need to hone the craft on your home market, as I as I always say, and get it right here. And um, the second thing I will say is be brave. I think um, we've been told to be humble and and taught to you know that we're the littlest country in the bottom of the world for so long that we are less likely to shout about what's amazing about what we're doing. And I think bravery, just do it. I mean, that's the biggest piece of advice um, is, is, is start. Go make mistakes, come over to the UK, sell a few things, get it wrong, start again. The more you're doing it, the quicker you'll get to a, a position where the success will come. Um, and I think the third thing is just is going back to that authenticity. I mean, you know your voice and stop worrying about what everyone else is doing overseas and just believe in what you're creating here is the most amazing, unique thing. I mean, I have a real passion for for the arts and performing arts, and, and I do a lot of work and I'm charitable work in the UK with theatres there, and, and I'm, I'm about to start something here in, in, in Wellington um, in a sort of the charitable sense with, with the performing arts scene here. And it constantly makes me so proud when I see New Zealand brands or New Zealand theatre or New Zealand music in London just getting the most amazing rapturous receptions. So stick to your guns um, and be, you know, whatever you're passionate about is, is the truth. And that authenticity will definitely translate overseas. It may take a while and it may be hard and we may make mistakes together getting there but ultimately what the success will come down to is how authentic you are and how you stick to your guns that's magic thank you very much for chatting to us today about that we'll look forward to seeing what those next steps are uh with the wellington performing arts uh and thanks yeah for for being a, a lifeline to so many people who have headed over into the uk market thank you to madeline chapman for producing today and thank you very much for listening You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by the spin-off and Callahan Innovation.
from the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.